I believe gun control is a loaded, forgive the pun, uh, biased term because of the word control. Nobody wants to be controlled. Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Ununinformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel dumb around your smart friends. We're talking about the gun debate in America. Joining me to talk about this are two law professors who are on different sides of the gun debate, and they wrote a book together. We're talking to Andrew McClurg, a law professor at the University of Memphis Cecil C. Humphrey School of Law, as well as Brandon Denning, the Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the Cumberland School of Law for Sanford University. And we'll be covering guns in two episodes. In this episode, we're talking about the benefits and costs of guns, as well as, you guessed it, the Second Amendment. Next episode, we'll talk about some of the solutions to the gun deaths in America. Andrew McClurg and Brandon Denning, welcome to Ununinformed. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. In 2016, you two co-authored the book, Guns and the Law. In the book's preface, it says this. I'll read it. The book offers a balanced presentation of gun law and policy. McClurg adheres to pro-reasonable regulation stance, while Denning is the supporter of guns rights. Our different points of view on firearms and firearm policy help ensure that both sides of the issues are fairly presented, a balance often lacking in this highly charged area. So you two are on different sides of the gun debate, but you come together to write a book about guns. What, what, what brought this about? Well, um, well, Brandon and I have been working together for quite a while. We wrote an earlier book back in 2001 for NYU Press on the same issue. Um, I believe the publisher, Caroline Academic Press, gave me a call and asked if I would consider doing a book in this area. And my thought was to call Brandon because I knew that being a pro-regulation supporter, um, I could not possibly write a completely unbiased book, even if I tried to, because I think we're all subject to our biases. And Brandon is a reasonable, um, intelligent scholar on the other side, so I thought it would be perfect for us to work together. And it did work. We kept each other honest throughout the whole thing. It was sort of funny because when Andrew called me, I think he was, he kind of half wanted to do it. And when he described it to me, I kind of half wanted to do it. And being law professors and bad at math, we thought that that meant that, you know, uh, you had 100% enthusiasm for it. And I think uh, <laughs> what we found out is it was a lot harder <laughs> than, than we uh, than we anticipated. Uh, and I sort of uh, had gotten a slow start but uh, on my chapters. But, but once I got into it, um, I mean, I, I remember vividly working very hard uh, three years ago, the summer of 2015. Um, and as the book began to take shape, um, I really got excited about it because I thought that what we were producing was something unique, um, that it, it, was, it was truly a, a, a balanced uh, presentation of the issue. And uh, we cover a lot of different ground in the book. And uh, I learned a lot, you know, um, writing my chapters and reviewing Andrews. And it just, it, it, it's something I'm, I'm very, very proud of. 
Um, I don't think I will ever, ever, ever want to write a casebook from scratch again, but <laughs> I can sort of check that one off the bucket list. Fantastic. And, and oh, Let me ahead. just add one thing to that. Is, and I don't know if I've even told Brandon this. I just finished teaching a semester, a course, Guns in the Law, using our book for the very first time, and I'm happy to report it really did work well because of the balance and because of the way we tackled the topics and, and structured the book. Balance is definitely something I, we don't see in the argument here. Well, and I'm, I, I think as I as I look back on it, and um, and Andrew, I'm I'm going to teach a course next spring uh, using our book uh, here at Cumberland, Great. and and I think what as I look back, I think what we were trying to do is um, almost uh, sort of model um, a way to talk about the issue without you know, the vitriol and the kind of ad hominem uh, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, rhetoric that, that you know, go, that, that often accompanies uh, this particular debate. And, and let, let's talk about the book. I, I, in chapter one, it talks about the benefits and costs of guns. Let, let's go into that a little bit. So th- I guess I'll first address this to Brannon. Um, so briefly, what are some of the benefits of guns, which you feel are really important? Well, I think, I mean, there are lots of answers to that question. I mean, sure. uh, I have friends who uh, collect them and like to go shoot. I have friends who hunt. Uh, obviously, self-defense is the one that usually sort of comes, you know, to mind. And I think, I think this peculiar American relationship to guns has everything to do with our political culture um, and that... You know, that by enshrining, and I know we'll talk about this in a minute, but enshrining the right to keep and bear arms in uh, the Constitution, I think it signals that, you know, unlike sort of the attitude of many uh, sort of European countries where um, it, it really represents a completely different relationship between the citizen and the state. Uh, so the state does not have a monopoly on instruments of violence, and I think that that is you know, even though people sort of probably don't reflect on it too much, is, is represents an important kind of American view of freedom, you know, that you don't depend on the state for your safety, that you can, you can if you choose, uh, you know, take that responsibility on uh, and, and not have to wait for the police or whatever. And, and so I think that, that those are a number of benefits that sort of get uh, bound up together. Andrew, do you want to kind of address that as well? Um, I agree with the benefits that Brandon listed. I think where we would agree, disagree is on the balance of those benefits against cost and also the actual evaluation of those benefits in terms of, of each one. In other words, is the data reliable to support the self-defense claim, et cetera. Uh, but I certainly agree with Brandon that those are all viable benefits of guns. Well, let's let's get into some of the costs. This is the thing that really triggers the debate. What what are some of the big costs? Let's just kind of summarize those a little bit. Well, the three big costs obviously are uh, homicides and other intentional shootings, accidents, uh, gun accidents, and way too often overlooked uh, because suicide is stigmatized in our society. Suicides, most uh, gun deaths in America occur because of suicide, not homicide. Uh, given our tremendous advances in trauma care, uh, we tend to overlook um, 
non-fatal injuries. So, for example, there may be 10,000 firearm deaths, homicides in America each year, but there's 65,000 other people who get shot each year intentionally but survive. So um, those are the big costs. Other costs include financial costs. They're hard to measure, but they're estimated to be billions, uh, law enforcement costs, medical costs. And then there's the intangible costs of living in a fear living in a gun-infested society. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. It has one of the highest gun violence rates in America, and I can tell you that it affects your daily living and your view of life. So I have a question for Brandon. Um, this is I, I reached out on Facebook trying to get people's opinions or some questions that I should ask you guys. Um, I've got Hannah Watts. She asks, what is the purpose of having high-caliber weapons available to the public? Bump stocks, assault rifles, etc. I genuinely would like to understand why people want them. And ultimately, is the risk of having guns, and big ones at that, very available, worth even the possibility that dozens of kids might die? Well, I mean, uh, see, part of the problem is that I think that uh, sometimes people who pose questions, uh, and I know I'm not trying to sound condescending, but this, I mean, what is high caliber? I mean, uh, take a, a deer rifle. A deer rifle shoots a .30-06 cartridge, uh, incredibly powerful firearm. Um, you know, but even small caliber weapons. I mean, most of the homicides that are committed uh, are committed with handguns. You know, nine millimeter, thirty-eight, twenty-two, all that. So. I don't even, it, it's hard to answer the question because it, it just, you know, you get into all sorts of definitional problems. What I will say is that, um, you, you know, why do people want to have, uh, you know, guns? I mean, why do people want to have cars that go twice the legal speed limit? I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. people, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I think, People want them for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, again, hobbyists, uh, you know, people just like guns. I think they're cool. Um, you know, they hunt with them or they, you know, uh, sport shoot or target shoot. And I think that that asking the question, you know, why should people uh, have them or have access to them is sort of, it's, it begs the question a little bit because the assumption is that's, that gun ownership is somehow aberrant or, um, you know, deviant as opposed to, you know, other quote unquote normal hobbies, which is not much of an answer to the question, but, but Andrew, take a stab. Well, I would add to that. that She may not be familiar with the terminology. Brandon's certainly right about caliber, not really being the issue. Um, the the things modern guns so dangerous is that most of them are semi-automatic and they're capable of carrying a large amount of ammunition that can be rapidly discharged. Um, to Hannah's credit, she uh, does ask about balancing again this that everyone likes guns. Brandon's right, people like guns, but how does that balance against the risk, which is enormous, uh, as we know? Uh, and so I think it's obviously a little legitimate question, and but it's also a very, very large question, very, very difficult to give short summary answer to. Sure, and especially like in in your book, I thought it was interesting how when you were defining different guns you talked about assault rifles how it's been even though people have tried to define it history has is shown that we've had difficult doing that anybody want to comment on that well yeah i mean and the reason because is it's it's sort of like um it's like hate speech 
because uh, it's a it's a term that's it's not a any kind of legal term of art, you know. I mean, assault weapons. Basically, when most people talk about assault weapons or assault style weapons, they're talking about guns that they consider scary. <laughs> <laughs> Just like uh, hate speech is is you know is, is sort of opinions that you find abhorrent, you know. Uh, and I mean, it's led to some. I mean, trying to define an assault weapon is has been led to some really absurd results where basically you take a, a hunting rifle, add uh, three cosmetic components on it, and then boom, suddenly it becomes uh, an assault weapon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just, I, I think pro-regulation uh, folks realized somewhere in the 90s that they had lost the battle over banning handguns. And so they tried to find um, uh, a type of weapon that you could probably convince many people that no reasonable person needed and then present it as sort of this is a reasonable regulation. Andrew, anything on that? So Brandon is right that assault weapons are not the main problem and just like mass shootings are not the main problem. You know, probably five people a day get shot in Memphis and nobody blinks an eye and it barely makes the news. Um, and there are, it has proven to be very difficult to give a legal definition of an assault weapon. In the book, we have a picture of an AR-15 assault rifle, and I point to that picture and I say, does anybody have any problem recognizing this? And if you look at all the mass shootings, all the guns look exactly like that. They're not taking hunting rifles out. They look just like or very similar to and started as, in fact, as military rifles. Uh, the main difference being they're not automatic, they're semi-automatic. It's hard to define, but I, you know it when you see. Um, so, But I also agree with Brandon that that's not the main issue in the gun debate. So when in reading the book's intro, it, it has a little footnote here. It says, we avoid the term gun control in this book. So Andrew, why is that? I believe gun control is a loaded, forgive the pun, uh, biased term because of the word control. Nobody wants to be controlled and we have regulations, extensive regulations for pharmaceuticals. We don't call it pharmaceutical control. We have extensive regulations for automobiles. We don't call it automobile control. So I think right off the bat, that label uh, biases the debate, um, just like tort reform biases the tort reform debate that, because it's um, it's just not an accurate term. Um, so I personally never use it, and I wish everyone would stop using it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's and it's funny because when when Andrew, uh, you know, we we when we first started the book, I remember him telling me that, and I thought, well, that's kind of quirky, but uh, but okay. And and the more I thought about it, and the more that I got into the book, I really agree. I think that it it's yeah. I mean, like tort reform, like you know, it, it's question begging, right? Like it assumes uh, that the the system needs reforming, right? And gun control sort of. You know, it sounds very authoritarian, uh, and I think talking about reasonable regulation or regulation uh, or being a regulation skeptic like me, I think that's a little, you know, we it's a little more neutral. Now, Joe Morrison on Facebook, he asks, how have gun bans and regulations successfully stopped the next shooting or kept guns out of the hands of people with bad intentions? So, in other words, is is gun, well, not control, but is... Is gun regulations, is it working? Do you want to attack it, that, Andrew? 
Sure. Well, first of all, it's a good question, and I will be the first to agree that, first of all, let me say it's impossible to prove cause and effect, I believe, in this area because of all the variables involved. We also don't have enough gun data. I think, hope we're going to talk about this later because we don't conduct enough gun research. So, no, I cannot point to any particular gun regulation and say that would prevent an individual event on causing harm from doing so. I will say this. If you look at a 50-state map of the death rates by gun per 100,000 people, there is a correlation, a rough correlation at least, between the lowest death rates in the states with the strongest gun regulation. I do believe uh, stronger gun regulation has an effect or would have an effect. Of course, it would be more effective on a national level because guns can easily travel across state lines. Um, but the states with the lowest death rates include states like you know, the usual suspects that you would guess, Washington, the West Coast states, uh, California, Hawaii, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, these are all the states with the strictest gun r regulation regimes. Brandon, do you have, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, um, I, I think one of the things that I took away from working with Andrew on this is that we talk about lowering gun deaths, I think immediately people go to... Um, crime and intentional shootings. And I think, you know, that one answer to this uh, or, or one sort of helpful focal point for people when you talk about regulations to focus on the tremendous number of suicides and accidental shootings. I mean, accidental shootings is a small percentage, but the number of suicides each year, um, you know, it's staggering. And I, I think that it often gets overlooked because for some reason we just want to abstract those out. And, and it's part of this larger problem that we have talking about mental health in this country. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's some things that could be done uh, to reduce the number of suicides. I mean, um, there's a gentleman at Alabama uh, law school named Fred Vars. And Fred's got this idea that uh, you have a, a sort of like casino self bans and casinos that people who, um, you know, we're worried that they may, uh, that they were suicidal or were having mental health problems, could put their name on a list and they couldn't, um, couldn't purchase a gun uh, for the time that they uh, had their name on the list. And then they could, when they got better, whatever, uh, they could go and have their name removed. And I think, you know, I'm not uh, opposed to having a conversation about uh, laws like that at all. Yeah. And actually, California just passed that law uh, very, very recently. But Yes, in terms of what regulations do I think would be effective, that would be a very long answer. So yeah, if we and, get into that, let's, let's I say, definitely we'll, have We'll save that toward a... <laughs> we'll, we'll go into uh, solutions a little bit later, but I, I think we, we, we've we mostly attacked the, the surface of that. So let's talk about the Second Amendment. How can we talk about gun control without talking about the Second Amendment? But I just want to start by reading the Second Amendment when I read this, I was kind of surprised, and it was of the bad grammar or whatever awkwardly put sentence. Here we go. Second Amendment, here it goes. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, period. So I've spent a lot of time staring at this sentence and trying to figure out what it means, and I think it's not even a fraction of how much you folks have looked at this and all of the hours spent on this silly run-on sentence that has caused so much debate. And I'm, I'm, I feel that a lot of people are 
these days, not talking too much about that first clause, the well-regulated militia, and a lot of people are talking about the the end part of the right to bear ar- the right of the people to bear arms. So let's talk a little bit about how the Second Amendment could talk about the collective right to bear arms and an individual right. So obviously, some of that changed in two thousand eight, and we'll get to that later. But what are some of the arguments that led up to? That the, that the argument of individual right and collective right. Um, Brandon, uh, what do you have to say about that? Okay, um, a couple things. So uh, the two schools of thought, uh, until 2008, the, the debate had largely uh, centered around these two uh, interpretations. The, the so-called collective rights interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, would read the amendment to do no more than to protect the right of states to have an armed militia. And militia, by the way, uh, had a very different meaning in the 18th century than it does now. Now, I think when people think of the militia, they think of the National Guard, which isn't correct. The framers would have uh, seen the militia as um, a a much broader cross-section of of, free white males ages 17, 18, up until the 40s. And this was the body. Can I just stop right in there because he, he went fast by fairly quickly. One thing is clear that it, the militia consisted of white, non-slave males, no women, uh, no African Americans, and that was their clear intent. I think Brandon would agree on that. Just pointing that out. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So just as you know, those were the only people who voted too. So. Um, yeah. um, and the idea is that the, this collective right um, doesn't really have anything to do with an individual's right to own firearms, uh, uh, you know, privately owned firearms. Now, the individual rights interpretation would say, well, yes, uh, it was intended to preserve, um, you know, the, the, the militia or protect the militia as a force in being, but it did so by preventing the federal government from having the opportunity to disarm individuals who would, of course, make up the body of the militia. And uh, in any event, it's clear that, so, uh, and, and I think that, I actually think the framers, if you were to be able to dig them up and interrogate them, wouldn't even understand the question that we're asking because I don't think that they would have differentiated between the, this collective right and individual right. That wasn't, I don't think that that's how they thought. But in any event, that's, those are sort of the two basic, um, you know, those were the sort of competing schools of thought over uh, what the Second Amendment meant. Um, now, interestingly enough, uh, you know, this collective rights um, uh, interpretation, you know, I, I don't think that the folks who were pushing it forward had really necessarily thought it through because, you know, I could imagine my, you know, in Alabama, for example, uh, you know, you could, what would happen if, if Alabama passed a law and said everybody's a member of the militia, and by the way, uh, you know, we're going to issue everybody automatic weapons, even though that's illegal under federal law. What would that, you know, what would that collective rights mean? You know, it's sort of like the old Tom Lehrer song, you know, we'll all, be, we'll all remain serene and calm when Alabama gets the bomb kind of thing. <laughs> and, and anything you want to uh, add to that, Andrew? No, I think Brandon gave the you know basic breakdown um i would point out that up until 2008 the understanding of the united states courts was almost unanimous 
one major one exception, one case, um, in agreeing that it did mean that it protected a collective state right with regard to an organized militia. And not, not all these decisions were deeply reasoned, but um, that's where we were when we came to 2008. And so let's get up to 2008. But first, let me just mention something that's kind of interesting here. Not only did I buy your book, Guns and the Law, but I also bought the older book that was, what year was that? Um, 2002. 2001, maybe? 2001 or two. And so I read that trying to get answers on the Second Amendment, and it was up in the air. And I realized that that book was out of date because District of Columbia versus Heller case had not happened yet. And that court decision turned the tables because that was the first time that the Supreme Court had weighed in on whether the Second Amendment was talking about an individual right to bear arms or the collective right to bear arms. So let's talk about that. Uh, do you want to kind of give our audience a, a briefing on D.C. versus Heller, um, Brannon? Yeah, first of all, <laughs> I've got to back up just a little bit. Sure. Um, th- there's a very specific reason that uh, the case was brought in the District of Columbia, and that's because the Second Amendment was one of the few remaining provisions in the Bill of Rights that hadn't um, undergone this process called incorporation. So originally the Bill of Rights was held to apply to the, to the federal government only. And it wasn't until the ratification of the 14th Amendment um, that uh, parts of the Bill of Rights were interpreted to apply um, to the states. So at the time when Heller was brought, um, um, you know, the Second Amendment hadn't been incorporated. That didn't happen until 2000, uh, 2010. So the district, because it is a federal enclave and not a state, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, that was why the, the, the litigation had to begin there. If you had br- it could have been brought, but it would have been dismissed because, you know, uh, the Second Amendment didn't at that time apply to states. So the case was brought... In the face of, by the way, a vehement opposition by the National Rifle Association. And really? A DC, it was also brought in D.C. because of um, the strict gun control laws uh, that they had there. That uh, D.C. made it impossible for you to have an operable you know, uh, shotgun or long rifle in your home for self-defense. And you couldn't have a handgun, period. Correct. So um, the case sort of wins its way up uh, through the courts and... They got a, a favorable decision from the Court of Appeals for uh, the District of Columbia. And then uh, the case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, basically, in a very, very long opinion, uh, Justice Scalia, for the majority, uh, said, essentially, the Second Amendment protects uh, the right of an individual to possess a handgun, at least, for self-defense in the home. But there were lots. I mean, for such a lengthy opinion, you would have thought that some of the basic questions uh, that are still being kicked around in the court of the court in the lower courts now uh, would have been answered. But there were there were lots of things left open, and and there were lots of uh, points in the opinion where uh, Scalia went out of his way to say, well, now this you know this doesn't mean that you know all regulations are constitutionally suspect. In fact, he went through a laundry list of 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 presumptively valid uh, regulations of firearms. Well, so we so basically, a... I mean, what, Go ahead. I was just going to say, so basically what we know uh, from the opinion that at a minimum, complete prohibition of commonly owned 
uh, firearms uh, kept in the home for self-defense is off the table. Uh, that is no longer a policy option for state and local governments or for the federal government. On, on Facebook, we had a comment from Adam Alba. He said, this is the big question for both of you. Did Scalia get it right when he appinned when he that the term bear arms was a term that could have been divorced from military service? Um, who wants to go first on that, this one? I think well, that's a very opinion. specific part of the opinion. As, as Brandon said, this opinion was basically novel length. Um, uh, and, and, and I can address that specific point. Um, but just that's part of his broader interpretation in the Second Amendment. That's just one small part. So it was a 5-4 decision. So one justice going the other way would have meant there is no individual constitutional right to possess guns for self-defense in the home. Um, and I'm sure Brandon will disagree with this. And there are two views of his opinion. It was a masterwork of textual originalism. His philosophy is, I'm going to interpret the words themselves as they were intended by the framers of the Constitution at that time. So that's what he's trying to do. So how does he approach this? As you said, it's an awkwardly worded amendment, but it began with a clause, a well-regulated militia being essential to uh, a free state. He sets that aside. He goes, well, I'm going to start with the second part. So that's unusual, a back-to-front reading of the amendment. It starts by analyzing the operative clause, what he calls the operative clause. Um, I don't have the words right before me, but the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So he goes through that and, and comes to the conclusion that, well, it's really clear. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And essentially goes back and says, therefore, this militia clause doesn't mean anything. Um, but by ignoring the militia clause, he pretty much indicated at the very get-go that he'd already decided the case. In terms of bare arms, what he did, his textualist approach, is to find old dictionaries and look up the meanings of words as from you know that century. And um, for bare arms, he, as I recall, I'd have to go back and check, but he basically said, well, bare meant, you know, whatever, you know, carry. Um, but if you read Justice Stevens' dissent, he points to several historical references from that time uh, that shows that bare arms was an idiom uh, that was used to refer to carrying arms in relationship to military service. Really, the only way to know what they intended would be if we could do what Brandon suggested, is dig them up and say, did you really mean this? Did you really mean this? But um, a very respected judge, Judge Richard Bosner of the Seventh Circuit, uh, analyzed uh, the Heller opinion and, and called it a snow job um, in terms of being true to textual originalism as a judicial philosophy. Um, there's a lot of room to just manipulate and pick and choose what you want and what supports your position and what didn't, and that's sort of what I think Justice Scalia did. Okay, uh, well, I mean, Brandon, I, let's, I, let's hear it. Let's hear your uh, the the Brandon Denning dissent. <laughs> well, I I think it's I I don't think it's a great opinion myself. I think it's too long. Um, I think that you know the I think the originalism part is. Um, I mean, it's heavily qualified because of some of the <laughs> some of the, the the sort of escape hatches that he uh, that that he built in there um, that he doesn't really explain. Um, you know how those work historically. Uh, so as a work of original, originalism, I'm not sure it's uh, 
you know, it's not the sort of nay plus ultra that, that people make it out to be. Uh, having said that, I, I do basically think that he got it right. Uh, and I think that it certainly is an interpretation that comports for, with most people's belief about uh, what the Constitution says about their ability to own firearms. Um, I mean, the polling on that question, you know, going back at least two decades, probably even more, uh, has an overwhelming majority of people saying, you know, this is, we, we think this is, you know, that the Second Amendment protects our individual right to, to have uh, guns for self-defense. And it is clear, whatever the, the 18th century view of it was, certainly by the, by the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified and members of Congress were talking about what sort of rights uh, they thought that this, the due process clause or the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment protected. Uh, gun ownership for self-defense was certainly one of them. Well, let me stop there because it's the antithesis of Justice Scalia's and RIP Justice Scalia, by the way. Uh, but the antithesis of his philosophy that modern polling would show is people want this. There's nothing that I've ever seen, including in the opinion, that suggested even if they had thought about it, maybe they would have come to a conclusion and put it in there. But nothing that suggested that it was the purpose of the Second Amendment was to create an individual right to self-defense. Um, Madison made that fairly clear in the Federalist Papers that the purpose of this Second Amendment was to appease the states who opposed this new central government and feared this new standing army and to appease them to adopt this constitution by saying, here, we're going to create uh, this right to bear arms so that state militia can always be a bulwark against tyranny. And there's nothing in there that suggests, oh, and it was also our purpose to protect an individual right to self-defense. So again, if we're really just looking at the, the textual originalist interpretation of it, as opposed to what most people think or what most people would want, or even what a poll would have shown back then, which probably would agree with what Brandon's saying now, that, well, heck yes, I should. I'm have a right to protect my, keep my musket for self-defense. Um, that's not really answering the question of whether that's what was intended in passing the Second Amendment. Obviously, I, I <laughs> that's not the way I read the history. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise you, because there are also references uh, in the Federalist Papers uh, with Madison saying, you know, that uh, you know tyrannies throughout history have always sought to disarm the people. And, and uh, you know, I, I just, I guess I, I'm skeptical that the framers would have even understood this collective versus individual issue as, as it wouldn't be a recognizable distinction to them, I think. I think that 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 the, the, the ability to keep a, a firearm for self-defense, I think, would be just assumed. Uh, and so the real question was, well, if you have the individual right to protect your family as self-defense, then, you know, they sort of would reason, the 18th century mind sometimes would reason, so that, 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 the, uh, uh, that this right of collective self-defense writ large was, um, you know, just a, a simply a scaling up of that individual right to self-defense and would occur through the instrument of the militia comprised of individuals, you know, showing up with their privately owned arms. But um, <clears throat> obviously, <laughs> that's the thing about history. Uh, you know, it doesn't always answer. It just is. It doesn't exist to answer questions that we uh, 
at some time distant tend to pose to it. It's one reason that, you know, in terms of constitutional interpretation, I, I, I think history is important. I think the text is important, obviously, but, but I'm not sure that, that those are the only tools or that those are sufficient tools to answer the questions that come up uh, in constitutional law. But I would add one more interesting point. Even the the pro-gun rights movement, um, as as Brandon pointed out, Justice Scalia carved out uh, in what you know is called a safe harbor provision or a carve-out provision, a whole laundry list of types of gun laws that aren't protected, um, that aren't violated um, by that don't violate the Second Amendment. Yet he offers no textual originalist justification for this. So even the pro-gun rights movements are left movement is left scratching our head because he didn't even attempt to offer any explanation as to why are these types of laws okay? Why are these types of laws okay? These were things ever even thought of by the framers of the Constitution, and it was just kind of stuck in there. <laughs> and it just left a, it's an open question still to this day because the the Heller case didn't help with that, is what you're saying. <laughs> it just left well, it open. Well, I would point out, and Brandon would agree with this, that as of right now, it hasn't changed very much. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of lawsuits post-Heller challenging gun laws and virtually, and we have many of these cases in our case, like every single law has been upheld. Assault weapons bans have been upheld. Licensing restrictions have been upheld. High-capacity magazine bans have been upheld. And these have gone all the way up to the United States Courts of Appeals. So ultimately, um, all these laws are being upheld, um, and it will be up to the U.S. Supreme Court at some point, I think, to ultimately take these issues on and 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 that will be the final determination but the, as of now it hasn't really had that much of an effect yeah i think i mean one thing that your listeners might might not know is that uh the supreme court basically picks and chooses uh, the cases that it wants to hear it has nearly total control over its own docket and so it is under no obligation to grant uh, uh what's called a writ of certiorari which it has to do in order to hear the case. Also, uh, I would note that the court's docket itself, so 30 years ago, the court heard, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, the court may have heard 200, 250 cases. Uh, these days, uh, they issue less than 70 full-dress opinions. And his guns Makes gonna... you wonder what they're doing with all their time. <laughs> Well, I think there are political reasons as to why they're uh, denying cert and all these upholding, um, you know, all these gun laws right now. And um, it will be interesting, to say the least, <laughs> when they ultimately take up the issue. The biggest outstanding issue right now, I think, is the issue of public carrying. Does the right to keep and bear arms include a right to carry guns in public? Is a big, big issue because most states allow you know, public concealed and often open carry of handguns in public. And um, so far, every court to address that issue held that the Second Amendment does not uh, guarantee a right to bear arms in public. It will be interesting to see if the Supreme Court addresses that at some point and how it comes out. Ironically, the one court that said that that Heller did apply outside the House was a Seventh Circuit decision of whose author was none other than Judge Posner. Vociferous critic of Heller. Uh, I actually think that uh, I think he did that on purpose uh, to try to force the court's hand. But that's a that's another issue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got another question that kind of gets a little more general. Um, This is from Brandon Shumway. He said, is the original purpose of the right to bear arms protect against oppressive government? 
even valid in the modern era? Does my rifle give me some sort of protection against the oppression of a nuclear superpower? If that wasn't the intent, what was it? Well, I, I would say that was the intent, but I will also say that in teaching uh, my course this semester, I sense this very new heightened um, fear of tyranny that surprised me that could have something to do with present circumstances. Um, so several students were arguing that that was still a very valid purpose um, and a necessary need to own guns to protect us from the federal government. And in your book, I don't you agree with talk it, about the the fear of tyranny. That's kind of a newer concern. A few decades ago, that wasn't. Is that is that right? Well, it's interesting. That was the original it's, purpose of it is what I would argue, and that's why they had to pass the Second Amendment. I think. I mean, look. Well, we'll we'll start the 18th century and move forward. I mean, uh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the, the the framers, the American Revolution was uh, sort of skippered by men who had really internalized a lot of the political philosophy uh, that was coming out of England in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, you know, around the time of uh, the Glorious Revolution and the overthrow of the Stuarts and all that. And they almost learned it too well because they were hypersensitive to any incursions on what they considered to be their rights of as Englishmen. And, I mean, <laughs> one might almost describe them as being a little bit paranoid because they literally thought that the English were trying to enslave them. And so they were going to be very suspicious of any kind of centralized government that, that posed that kind of threat to, to liberty. And, and I think Andrew's right. I think it was, you know, that they, I mean, they'd done it once. You know, they had taken up arms against, uh, you know, uh, against England and they saw no reason why that might not have to happen at some point in the future again. And I think today it's interesting that to the extent that, that you know, I mean, usually that, that sort of suspicion and paranoia is seen as a right-wing phenomenon, uh, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, uh, you know, we talk a little bit in the book about the Black Panthers. Uh, California's restrictive gun laws are not the result of some sort of liberal, you know, gun-grabbing state administration. They were passed under Ronald Reagan. Basically, yeah, when as, he was the, the uh, governor, right, of California? Yeah, when he was governor. That's a super uh, And it was because the Black Panthers, uh, the Black Panthers it really embraced. I mean, they saw that it was the duty, their duty to arm themselves and protect uh, themselves because they didn't feel like that they could rely on the government uh, to do it for them. Um, similarly, I think now with some of the, I think people who might have been, you know, uh, pro-gun control during the uh, sorry, pro-gun regulation during the Obama administration, they find themselves, you know, uh, uh, you know, think regarding the federal government, it's a little less benign now, um, which is, uh, you know, which makes it a great time, I think, to, to you know, to have some of these conversations. Oh, and it's, uh, as far as the nuclear superpower thing, I mean, uh, you know, you, you know, the North Vietnamese took on a nuclear superpower. I mean, the, you know, <laughs> we've been in Afghanistan for 17 years, right? So uh, being a nuclear superpower isn't all cracked up to be. <laughs> that was Andrew McClurg and Brandon Denning, who co-authored the book Guns and the Law. This is part one of a two-part series about guns in America. Next time, we'll be talking about solutions. Andrew and Brandon don't believe in pushing for things like a full-on gun ban. 
Rather, they push for some moderate measures that aren't getting enough attention in today's gun debate, like this. We don't know hardly anything about guns um, because we don't collect data, um, we don't do much research. More on that next week for part two of our coverage of guns in America. Thanks for listening. Even after listening to our two-part series, you'll still only get a fraction of what is covered in the book, Guns and the Law. I purchased this book because of its balanced approach to the gun debate that I have trouble finding anywhere else. If you'd like to purchase it, I put the link in the show notes. Our music is provided by D.D. Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un-Uninformed. See you next week. Thank you.